Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Masidi. We're here at Miranda Warnings today to talk about the Electoral College and its process. With us today is Michael Fox, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Pre-Law at Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh, New York, and Howard Schaefer of Howard Schaefer Media Marketing, a media relations agency in Albany, New York, and Howard is also an amateur presidential historian. So we're very excited to have both of you here, Michael and Howard, to talk about the Electoral College, what it is, uh, why we have it, uh, how it's working, how it maybe is not working, and how uh, what the options are for possibly doing better or, or changing. So let's let's kick it off with just a little brief understanding of what the Electoral College is uh, in our system of electing presidents. Michael. Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and excited to be talking with you here today. So we look first at the Constitution of the United States, which is where everything really starts. And we look at Article 2, and Article 2 is where we find not mention of an electoral college. There's no mention of an electoral college in the Constitution, but of electors. Electors for the office of president and vice president. And then we see the reason that we have this, if we look at the Federalist Papers, for example, Alexander Hamilton, um, writing in New York as, as Publius, uh, Federalist 68, talks about the fact that we are choosing the chief magistrate of the United States and looks at it as the supreme office in the country. And what protections do we have to ensure that the person who's selected for the office is of the best character, the best qualities to hold the office? So the compromise of the founding fathers was to choose between direct election by the people or election by the Congress. And both groups advocated for their position and came up with the compromise, the electors. So the electors, as we may know, each state has an allotted number of electors based upon their congressional delegation. Two for the senators and then one so for each of, of their... So a total of 538. Exactly. And uh, as per the Constitution, they are, it's not the Congress people or the senators. They're independent individuals that serve only uh, as electors. Exactly. As a matter of fact, there's a provision that they cannot be holders of federal office. Uh, it says members of the Congress or holders of public trust under the federal government, but that's been expanded in interpretation to mean anybody who holds a federal office because they didn't want the president to feel beholden to members of the federal government who choose him. And they also didn't want those who were choosing the president to feel that they might get some profit from the person they choose. So, so when we're talking about the origins of the Electoral College, so we have 538 electors, each state, it's a winner-take-all, basically, with the exception of, of two states, uh, Maine and, and Nebraska. Mm -hmm. um, and so the entire state, even if, uh, let's say, you know, New York, for example, has 29 electoral votes, if it's a 55-45 percentage uh, vote in favor of one candidate of the other, they don't get 55% of the electors, they get all 29. And so the winner uh, that uh, wins a particular state gets a windfall, basically, of electors that might not necessarily have been uh, uh, the same as the percentage of the, the votes that they get. 
Correct. And even more so, you if it's a winner-take-all situation, which it is in 48 states, it could be 50.1% to 49.9%. The 50.1% receives all the electoral votes. And so we had a situation in the last election, and this is obviously, we're looking at this from a high level, not from a political level, where the uh, the President Trump received less than the the majority of the of the popular vote in fact uh, over like 2.8% less than uh Hillary Clinton right yet he received more electoral college votes because he won a higher majority of very close states and won all of those uh electoral votes and uh, this is now the second time in the last five years, that w- uh, last five elections, rather, that we've had a candidate lose the popular vote and, and win the electoral college vote. Yes. In fact, in the 1800s, it happened three times, 1824, 1876, 1888. It didn't happen at all in the 1900s. So for 112 years, we didn't have that phenomenon happen. And then it happened again in 2000 and then in 2016. It's interesting when you look at um, our founding fathers and the reasons why they did this. And there's some stated reasons, and then there's some, I'm going to say, below, uh, below the radar reasons that we probably should get into. Um, you know, the stated reasons are, at the time, they weren't, they weren't sure that the populace would elect the right person. And they wanted to have the Electoral College kind of as a buffer, that you'd have these kind of high-minded people to uh, minimize the risk of somebody who was just maybe uh, a good salesman, for example, uh, fooling people into uh, winning an election, Um, which is really interesting when you look at now 250 plus years later, Uh, the situation that we're faced with in our country. And what's also just, to me, terribly interesting is the Founding Fathers talk about the corruption of the electoral process. And the reason for the Electoral College um, is that uh, the corruption of an electoral process could most likely arise, this is the Founding Fathers, uh, arise from the desire of foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant into our councils. And so to minimize the risk of foreign inducements, um, an electoral college would only have a kind of a transient existence and as a buffer. Um, But what we see now uh, today is that the states um, don't permit the electors to say, change their vote. Most states, require if you're an elector for a particular candidate you have to you have to vote for that that candidate so we didn't we saw very little let's say in the last election of someone not voting as they were elected uh in their uh, electoral votes howard um what do you think about the the reasons for having the electoral college in the first place you know there are a number of um benefits that not only the Founding Fathers most likely had in their thinking, but may also be relevant today, one of which is uh, one would argue that it keeps the smaller states relevant in U.S. politics. When you take some of the states like uh, our neighbors in Vermont or Hawaii, um, what kind of role would they have in a popular vote? You know, so it's a, it's a question to, to give consideration to. It, but let, let me ask you this, though, because there, I understand that we don't want to disenfranchise anyone. Um, but under the current electoral college system, 
um, it really kind of tips the scales of weight in favor of some of voters in a smaller state. So, for example, um, if you look at the actual votes, uh, a Wyoming resident's vote counts three and a half times more than uh, a Californian's vote. And so there's some that would argue mm. that this kind of abrogates the, the one man, one vote, one man, one vote rule. Yeah. Um, and, and you wonder, what was the thinking of the Founding Fathers when uh, this design was created? Was it to ensure a two-party system? Uh, was it to ensure, uh, you know, a, a, a certain thought process by which a, a, an election would be determined at the end of the game? In other words, one of the things that um, has been pretty consistent throughout all of our presidential elections is uh, you've heard the phrase, it's, it's all over but the screaming. You know, there seems to be a universal acceptance of what the Electoral College is, what it means, and how, and how it's been followed. Um, and uh, until uh, uh, we come up with a better system, is this what we this is what we have to work with today? Well, you, you, it's, it's interesting that you you mentioned the the founding fathers because, as as Michael points out, this was a compromise. Uh, between having a purely popular vote and having uh, one that was elected by the the Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and at the time, we have to face the reality of the situation that we had. At the time, it was only white men that were voting. Um, And this was really a compromise with the southern states, not necessarily the smaller states, um, but the southern states, because they felt that if we had a purely popular vote, that they would not, they would lose uh, some of their uh, their clout, and they would be overwhelmed because they had a large population, um, but not a large population of of white males. Uh, and this was obviously, you know, slavery was in in effect in the country, and you know, this was really kind of a compromise to the southern states because of those issues that were really founded. Um, in slavery. So whatever, you know, high-minded ideals we hear about, you know, in the Federalist Papers and which are, you know, beautifully written, um, there was this underlying, honestly, ugliness uh, that uh, the Electoral College system was, was based on. And it's interesting because when we think about what some of the motivating factors of the Founding Fathers might have been, we know from some of the writings that among their concerns, one was the representation, the proportional representation, right? So we have things like the three-fifths clause, which David references, and, and the population of the South, and some of those considerations. There's a concern that they have about how news was spread. And remember, when they were drafting the Constitution, we didn't have the political parties we have now, or even in the 1800s. So the concern was, if you have three or four candidates who are running, and you have somebody who's a farmer in New York or Virginia, and doesn't live near a town, how will they make an informed decision? Uh, They had that concern. They had concern about foreign influences and corrupt influences, which is why they had the electors meet in their state capitals, as opposed to meeting in one central location where someone could get to them and potentially wield um, some sort of power over them. And if you take these and put them together, you see that the overarching thought was the electors that are chosen will be those who we believe have the character and qualities to check the vote. And the people will have input because their vote will determine who the electors are, but ultimately the electors will be able to choose who they believe is the best candidate for president. And I think that's why you don't see a lot of states that have bound 
electors, mm -hmm. because that was the original intention, was not to be bound so that you could vote your, not only your conscience, but what you believed in your character was for the best uh, choice. I, I mean, uh, each state obviously has control over their electors, but I know that there's some states yes. that have, there, you could, you could, it's a crime if you don't vote as uh, represented. You could go to prison. There's uh, monetary penalties uh, if you if you don't vote the the way that the electoral uh, you know your represented electoral uh, delegate goes. Uh, so so now we have so we have this situation. We have an electoral college that's founded amongst some good ideas and some uh, ideas that no longer are. Uh, appropriate uh, for our country. We have uh, two out of the last five elections, the, the, the person that is now is president didn't receive the popular vote. Why can't we just go and just have a purely popular uh, vote to elect uh, a president now? We don't have the situation that you discussed, Michael, where it's the 1800s and we get our, you know, a news three weeks later from you know, somebody on a, you know, on a, on a horseback. Um, we, everyone is, has a constant flow of information. We can make our decisions for better or for worse. Uh, right now, based upon whatever news or fake news that we, we want to rely upon, um, why can't we just go to a pop, purely popular vote? You know, uh, um, add to that the argument of why should certain states have the influence that they do as swing states? Yet historically, when we look at just over the past even 50 years, swing states have changed. You know, right now, 2018, 2020, swing states are places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. Uh, yet, uh, when you historically look at um, earlier elections, uh, there were different swing states. So how does that all tie in? I guess it's, it's really more of a question. And I think that's something that we certainly could look at some of the things that you've already talked about, David, which is we have an, a more informed populace today. Um, we have a situation where um, there has been in the news discussion about foreign influences in elections, whether we have the Electoral College or we don't. And so if we're looking at one person, one vote, mm -hmm. I believe that having a direct election system, doing away with the Electoral College, um, even without a, a, a compromise of proportional Electoral College, which we can talk about that Maine and New Nebraska have, but if we have direct election by the people, I think you would see less of that concern over swing states because now if you have a state where an individual might have received 49.9% versus 50.1%, say in California, where you have 54 electoral votes, you might think, well, why am I going to spend resources and time there if my party won't succeed? I'm going to focus on another state where I would have the ability to obtain 50.1% or more. And now if you had a direct election by everyone, then you would focus on every state. So if you got 49.9% of the vote, instead of getting zero, you would get 49.9% of those Correct. delegates. But, and, yeah. here, but here's why I'm going to propose that that might not be the best idea. Because our population centers, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Florida, Texas, if you were able to get those votes, you would campaign exclusively there, you would be able to succeed in an election. And essentially disenfranchise much of the West, the Midwest, good portions of the South, uh, places like, you know, upstate New York would get very little attention. They would focus on, you know, New York, Boston, uh, the Eastern Seaboard, California. And if you could get a majority there, you would most likely be able to carry a popular vote. And so you would be disenfranchising large swaths of 
our country and our people. And so something that it's just a straight popular vote, I think, could cause problems throughout the country. But if I could counter that, because we're talking in theory, one of the things that we have in the United States is we have generally a low voter turnout. And I wonder if that isn't partly because you have those who feel disenfranchised, if they're in upstate New York, for example, and they feel, well, I'm in a certain political party, the other political party generally wins because of the major cities, so why am I going out to vote? Or does my vote really count? Whereas if your vote does count, I wonder if we would see a larger turnout of Democrats, Republicans, independents, other parties across the country in maybe rural areas where they might think, well, Republicans have an advantage, in cities where they think Democrats have an advantage. And maybe we wouldn't see see the types of blue and red that we would now see on an electoral map because you'd have small states and large states being focused on individuals feeling that their individual vote matters and maybe it'll enfranchise people. Yet the perspective is important too because while we're picturing in our mind uh, the election night blue and red maps that we see that have you know certain uh, large swaths of either color, um, let's keep in mind the perspective that also changes you know not that long ago in our lifetime the south would vote democrat in uh you know lyndon johnson 1964 kennedy in 1960 really not that long ago um the same way that certain states that used to be blue are now red certain states that used to be red are now blue and now there's purple states um over the close to 250 years that we've been around as a country it's it's constantly changing how come there's no green or yellow or orange mm. states, Howard? Hmm. You know, that's a graphics question. <laughs> I also wonder if, if we're looking at a system where, again, in 1824, for example, there was an electoral college mm -hmm. result where John Quincy Adams didn't have the majority of the electoral college or the popular vote, but there were more than two candidates, and so the House chose the winner. 1876, Hayes Tilden, you had Reconstruction. There were other factors in play there. 1888, there were some other factors in play. Then nothing for 112 years. So you had three elections in the 1800s that were affected by that. But since 2000, 40% of our presidential elections, 2000 and 2016, two of the five, the popular vote winner did not win the Electoral College. So are we seeing a shift where the Electoral College may be outmoded at this point because you have other factors in play, a more educated populace? Or does it still hold true that the Founding Fathers' vision was appropriate? What would you say to a system that where we'd still have electoral, uh, we'd still have the Electoral College, but rather than it being winner-take-all per state, each congressional district would have one uh, electoral vote. And then maybe, you know, the, each state would get two for their senators for um, uh, whoever won the full state. So you'd have, um, so in a state like New York, if it was, uh, you know, 55-45, you might have 15 electoral districts going to, uh, votes going to one candidate, 14 going to the other. Um, and in that in that instance, the swing states that you were talking about, Howard, would have would be would be less important. Now we would be talking about swing congressional districts. So uh, in New York, you know, maybe the Manhattan districts wouldn't be a swing district because that's uh, going to go blue. And maybe in certain parts of upstate, we would have they would clearly be red. But you'd have a district like the one in the Hudson Valley where uh, John Fossil right now is a congressperson, and that's very close. And so people would focus on, or candidates would focus on various electoral districts in states around the country. So it would be maybe a little bit harder for a candidate, but 
you wouldn't have these states that would be going all or nothing for someone. You'd have a district that obviously would have to give their vote to one person or another. And might that further engage people? Because how often have we heard, and we've all heard in campaign at campaign time, oh, my vote doesn't matter. You know, I've heard a friend of mine say, you know, well, he was going to vote for Clinton, but it didn't matter because Clinton won by such a wide margin. Yet, my response to that friend was, well, you live in a congressional district that was 4951. So A, your vote does count. But um, convincing people or people engaged to the point where they understand their role as a citizen is especially important, which really is a whole separate discussion. But your thought there might, uh, might have, some, uh, have some value. Any downside, do you think, Michael? Um, I, I can foresee a downside. I think it's certainly a positive. Nebraska and Maine have a system similar to that now, and I think it certainly is closer to that direct representative democracy of the people vote and choose the president. The downside, the potential downside I could see, is the possibility that you would be giving, in a year where a candidate has particularly long coattails, you may very well be giving one party control of the presidency and the House and Senate for at least two years until the midterm elections. Because if you think about the distribution, if you're going based upon congressional districts and senatorial districts, basically the states, so you have two statewide and then the rest are congressional district-based, um, the, the Congress, the House of Representatives, more than likely if someone's going to the polls, they may be voting for the same party for the Congress and the presidency, and you would end up with potentially, whether it's good or bad, representative, demo representative democracy. Do we want one party for two years to have all the control? Potentially. You might have a situation where the House and Senate are different. You might have someone who votes for a Democratic senator and a Republican presidential candidate or vice versa in the state. But I can foresee that as a potential issue if we want a multi-party system. But if you had if you had a president, a presidential candidate that had such great coattails that they would carry a Congress, a, uh, I mean, we're just talking about the selection of the president that would change. The selection of Congress wouldn't change. So you, they would probably win uh, either the Electoral College or, or uh, under our current system or uh, under a popular vote. I mean, what we're talking about is the, the issues where we have close elections. And, and so the question is, do we want to have a, a state uh, being considered the close swing vote or do we want to have a congressional district that's spread out across multi-states in across the whole country? I mean, there's there are swing congressional districts in most states. Uh, there's going to be at least one that's a swing vote. I mean, you look at Maine. If you, if you look at how things went the last election, Maine would have has four electoral votes, and it has uh, two uh, congressional districts. One of those districts went. Democrat, one went Republican, mm -hmm. and the state went Republican, so they got three votes to one rather than four to zero, which if they went under the current system. So the three to one is certainly much closer to the proportionality of the voters right. uh, in Maine. Absolutely. And I think closer to the people, the better mm -hmm. would be my feeling in terms of representative democracy. You know, so much of this goes back to uh, what do we teach the next generation of citizens? Uh, we've heard discussions and arguments that happen more more often now lately about what uh, is being taught in civics class. Uh, there are high schools now that no longer have a civics class. So it makes one wonder, what do our uh, kids and, and grandchildren, what are they going to learn about being 
being a responsible citizen? What do they know about, uh, and what are they learning about the responsibility that a good citizen has? And part of it is voting and getting to understand this process. Well, this has been uh, fascinating, and uh, I think we've come up with some good ideas uh, for our nation to move forward with uh, in the future. Uh, this uh, electoral college issue obviously is one that's gonna we're gonna hear more about, and uh, I thank you both for your informed uh, education to us all on on these important issues. We have a feature on Miranda warnings called music, book, or movie, where I ask you to share uh, with us a performance of some kind, some artistic performance that either means something to you, can be connected to this issue, or, or not. So. Do you want us to sing? Yeah, if you could sing, that would be that would be good. That would improve our ratings. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. So I my 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 performance is Howard singing uh, the the U.S. Constitution to us, which is always a, a, a popular favorite. Uh, a book I recently uh, finished reading, it's just out for a couple months now, is called First in Line. The author is Kate Anderson Brower, who is a former ABC White House reporter. And she discusses the relationship in modern presidency between presidents and vice presidents. And she was able to draw on the staff the number two, the number three, the number four people, uh, both working in the White House and working for a number of vice presidents since Nixon, Ford, Cheney, uh, Mondale, et cetera. And what I got out of the book was the role, was understanding the role that vice presidents have. For example, when you look at the relationship between um, Cheney and George Bush or between uh, Walter Mondale and President Carter, they were genuine partners. And they worked together harmoniously, uh, and and there was um, – uh, their agendas were more complete because of that. And then you had relationships like that between Eisenhower and Nixon, which was distant, or the relationship between JFK and uh, Lyndon Johnson, which was fairly non-existent, and yet, yet Johnson was really responsible for carrying Texas, which won JFK the election. But it's an enlightening book to help us to better understand why it's important for presidents and vice presidents to have a working relationship. I would imagine from this point forward that uh, – the vice presidency now is far more important than it's ever been. Uh, a quarter of the vice presidents have become president. And it's an enlightening book. Again, it's called First in Line by Kate Anderson Brower. Great. Thank you, Howard. So I'll talk then about, um, just to have some diversity in what we're talking about, I'll talk about a, a particular performance that I recently viewed. It was on HBO. It's uh, Alexandra Pelosi's The Words That Build America. Uh, it was basically what they did is they took the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, and they had individuals read them word for word with no intonation, with no um, particular read regarding public uh, perception, political party, ideology. They just read the words that formed our country. And it was read by celebrities from Hollywood, members of Congress, governors, Supreme Court justices, all of the living presidents and vice presidents of the United States, Republican and Democrat, and then the Bill of Rights read by an elementary school class, students from an elementary school class. And I thought it was just very powerful to hear the words that founded our nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, read word for word, again, without any inflection or intonation of party line or anything else, 
but how they could gather these individuals from different ideologies, faiths, backgrounds, political parties, to read the words that bring us together as a country, that founded our country. And then finishing with the students in a school, as you were talking about civics education, how do we convey this to the next generation? And I thought it was a very powerful um, performance and a very uh, powerful uh, movie, television show that was out there that I think would be worth everyone taking a look at, uh, in my view. And that was, again, uh, HBO Films, The Words That Built America. It was an Alexandra Pelosi uh, film. The Words That Build America. That uh, sounds uh, inspiring. Thank you, Michael. I'm going to share one I think is particularly relevant here. It's called The Manchurian Candidate. Now, there are two movies uh, by that name. One re more recently was by Denzel, uh, Denzel Washington was the star. But there's an old one from the 60s um, that Frank Sinatra stars in. And he's not known for his acting necessarily, but he did, it was his acting performance, I think, of his career, did a wonderful job. And it's about um, a, uh, a group of individuals that uh, tried to run a candidate um, that is basically influenced by the Russians. And so the Russians infiltrate the election uh, through some uh, politicians in the, the United States, and they put up a candidate, uh, the Manchurian candidate, that was... Um, uh, kind of backed by the by the uh, by the Russians, um, and so I don't know if that could ever happen, um, but uh, it was it's an instructive movie. So Michael Howard, thank you very much for joining us here in Miranda Warnings for a very interesting discussion on uh, the Electoral College and its process. Thank you thank both. You, Dave. Thank you. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't.